Section 87 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 87 Socialism Its Philosophy of History. Socialistic Delusions Two Great Discoveries, the Materialistic Conception of History and the Revealing of the Secret of Capitalistic Production by Means of Surplus Value, we owe to Marx. Through them, Socialism has become a science. Frederick Ingalls The Truth In the palmiest days of science, no body of doctrine was called scientific unless its conclusions were well supported by their premises. In our day, an oracular style and an air of profound thought are sufficient credentials for the winning of scientific honors. Conspicuous among the pseudo-philosophers of the age is this self-same Karl Marx, a taste of whose scientific economics we have had in another article. See Socialism, Its Economic Fallacies. German philosophers sink their shafts deep, even when boring in the wrong place. The reader must not suppose that scientific socialism, conceived as it was in the brain of a Marx, could ever have confined itself to the immediate field of practical economics. It goes much deeper. It professes to bring us back to the beginning of things. But unfortunately, we fail to discern there the real beginning. Scientific socialism is essentially atheistic. Marx and his fellow prophet Engels, and socialistic philosophers generally, are of much the same school as Haeckel of Jena, about whom the reader will learn something in other parts of this volume. See Evolution and Haeckel. The ultimate basis of scientific socialism is what is known as the materialistic conception of history. It is the doctrine of materialistic monism applied in the domain of economics. Marx and his followers hold that nothing exists but matter. Mind is but a modification of matter. Thought, feeling, consciousness are mere reflection from the material world. A spiritual and immortal soul is an obsolete fiction. God, creation, providence are respectable myths. Matter and motion sum up the history of the universe and of man. The next link in this chain of speculation is the doctrine that the universe and all that it contains is perpetually changing. Man with his thoughts, his principles, and his moral standards, his social institutions, his beliefs, his worship, is moving on like the rest of the universe. There is nothing fixed or stable. There are no immutable ideas, no eternal truths. Moreover, a man's environment is the one determining factor in the details of his intellectual life. The human will is thus fated to act by a blind, irresistible impulse. But what has this to do with economics, or with socialism? It has much to do with them in the mind of Marx and his associates. For the one law of change and evolution, they tell us, operates in the world of production as it does elsewhere. The great aim of the socialist philosopher is to show how the law of change is going to land socialists one day in the possession of power. Assuming the role of prophet, the philosopher points to the land of promise which must eventually be reached 
by the multitude in the desert, and he endeavors to unfold the process of social evolution in some such way as this. The whole of human life is ruled and shaped by methods of production and exchange. The dominant ideas and intellectual tendencies of the race depend primarily on the way in which men produce and barter what is needed for the perpetuation and well-being of their kind. With every change in the economic basis of life, there is a resultant change in the social and intellectual life of men, in their mental life, in their social institutions, in their religion. Thus, two distinct orders of things are recognized, the order of economic facts and the order of ideas. Now these two orders, socialists tell us, do not run together with the exactness of clockwork. The one may lag behind the other, and for a time, whilst the economic order is developing on new lines, the order of ideas happens to remain unchanged. Consequently, a state of tension ensues between the two orders, till finally it reaches the snapping point, and then a revolution, resulting in the adjustment of the order of ideas to the order of facts. And now let us see how the socialists apply this precious bit of philosophy to the present posture of affairs. In the past few centuries, the industrial world has been undergoing a revolution. The individual laborer, working on his own account, is comparatively rare. His place has been taken by the employee who works for wages. In all the industries, the productiveness of each pair of hands has been vastly increased. Not that the human hand has acquired any new deftness. On the contrary, manual skill has decreased rather than increased. It is rather the perfection of the modern system of production, of which the human hand is an instrument, and a comparatively insignificant instrument, that enables a hundred pairs of hands today to produce on so vast a scale, and at the same time enables the owners of industries to reap such enormous profits. Now, according to the socialistic doctrine, refuted in socialism its economic fallacies, the profit really belongs to the working men, though it nearly all passes into the pocket of the capitalist. The result, we are told, is ever-increasing poverty for the working class. Hence the struggle between the classes, a phenomenon we are assured, which not only has occurred frequently, but has really formed the warp and woof of human history. Accompanying the present class struggle is the glaring contrast between the condition of the industrial world and its intellectual environment. This means, in the view of the socialist, that the present condition of the industrial world calls for, and will inevitably bring about, a revolution in which the ideas and institutions which the mass of civilized men believe to repose upon eternal truths or upon divine appointment will come to naught. Rights of property, the right of inheritance, the rights of the family, marriage, authority, and obedience, even religious belief and worship, all these must go, as unsuited to the condition under which man must work out his earthly destiny. Here, surely, we have socialism coming down to men's business and bosoms. Refutation, the materialistic conception of history. This doctrine, so far as it is identical with materialistic monism in general, we have already refuted. See Mind and Matter, Soul, Materialism, Evolution, God's Existence. We have shown that matter is not the only form of being. Immaterial mind and soul are as real as matter, 
and the primal and eternal being is spiritual. What we wish to emphasize here is that the doctrine is held by nearly all leading socialists, and books in which it is set forth as truth are circulated among the rank and file. Crass materialism is the daily bread of those who feed their minds upon such literature. This fact is alone sufficient to determine the bearings of socialism on religion. The Law of Change According to this doctrine, nothing is fixed or permanent, even in the sphere of thought, in science, or of religion. This sweeping assertion is lightly and gratuitously made, and indeed its falsity has been recognized by the more reflecting socialistic writers. Some have admitted that mathematics and the sciences dependent upon mathematics have to do with fixed ideas and immutable truths. A large concession, surely, for the exact sciences cover a large part of the territory of human knowledge, and they are based, moreover, on principles which belong to the still larger province of mental philosophy. Other socialists have frankly admitted that, in general, the realm of thought is independent of the material conditions of life, and that permanent principles of thought have modified the conditions of life. The Economic Basis of Human Life Here the absurdity of the materialistic view produces its height. We are told that upon modes of production, buying and selling, depends the whole structure of society as well as the whole world of ideas. Among other things, the dominant philosophy and religion of a country will depend upon its economic tendencies. Most of our readers will be astonished at so bold a generalization, even as coming from a socialist. If there is anything to be learned from history, it is surely the fact that most great movements, social, political, and religious, have had an origin quite independent of economic conditions. The growth of ideas, the sudden appearance of geniuses and of saints, personal and national ambition, faith and fanaticism, these are the main factors that have changed the face of society quite irrespective of the material conditions of life. Christianity, early in its career, found a home in every clime and flourished under every system of economics. The conquest of Alexander, which so profoundly influenced the course of history, had little or no connection with the economic state of society. Mohammedanism, the Crusades, the Renaissance, the Protestant Revolution, were independent of the conditions of commerce and production. But our best allies in this contention are in the camp of the socialists. The Ecclesia docens of socialism is split on this and on other subjects more hopelessly than it dare acknowledge to the mass of its adherents. The revisionists form a powerful section of the party devoted to the modification or the entire repudiation of the extravagances of socialistic teaching. If retained within the party, they must inevitably bring it to its ruin. Concerning the doctrine of the economic basis of society, the teaching of the revisionists runs counter to that of the pure Marxian section of the party. Bax, Bernstein, L. Woltman, and others have acknowledged in their writings that the realm of thought is to a great extent independent of the economic world. Let the reader not fail to grasp the significance of this admission. Taking their stand upon the doctrine we have been refuting, socialist leaders assure their comrades in the ranks that the new economics will one day adjust all things to themselves. 
But if the leaders are themselves unlearning the materialistic philosophy which is at the basis of these predictions, the question now is how long will the leaders be able to sustain the equivocal role of thinking one thing and preaching another? Economic Contrasts and Class Struggles Socialists, repeating by rote the words of their father and prophet, tell us that the history of a human society is simply the history of struggles between the classes. Here they are reading their one idea into all history. Class struggles are indeed prominent in history, but they are not the only struggles on record. Nor can it be proved that the majority of struggles are in any way even reducible to class struggles. The great historical events cited in a preceding paragraph, events involving many an important struggle, were not connected with the mutual opposition of classes. In many an important struggle, members of the two great classes which socialists have in mind fought side by side. Nor is it true that such class struggles as have occurred have had their origin in the glaring discordance existing between the state of economics and the general state of society. The discordance has had no existence outside the brains of a Marx or an Engels. Who could ever hope to prove that the ideas and institutions of society, as at present constituted, are at variance with the actual system of production and exchange? There is much, of course, in those ideas and institutions, which is in utter discordance with the hope and beliefs of socialists. But that is another matter. The Theory of Increasing Pauperization The same recklessness of assertion is shown in the dictum that under the domination of capital there has been a steady and increasing tendency to pauperism, whilst on the other hand all wealth is gradually passing into the hands of the few. The Erfurt Platform of 1891, which is the present gospel of the party, plainly sets forth the assumption that the present system means for working men a growing increase of the insecurity of their existence, of misery, oppression, enslavement, debasement, and exploitation. Now, as regards the validity of the pauperization theory, it must, of course, be admitted that the lot of certain classes of working men has been made hard by small wages, long hours of work, and high cost of living. But to assert that the lot of working men in general has been growing ever more miserable, and to appeal to the feelings of working men by drawing pictures of misery tending to starvation, but destined to end in revolution, is to act the part of a demagogue. Statistics and general experience contradict the assertion. The material prosperity of working men has been steadily increasing, and although colossal fortunes have been acquired by the few, the intermediate grades of society have also been growing in wealth. But here again the revisionists among the socialists ally themselves with men of sense and reject the pauperization theory. Opposition to it was well to the fore in the Socialist Congress of Lübeck in 1901, when Babel, the recent leader of the party, felt himself obliged to repudiate the doctrine taken in an absolute sense, while admitting that, absolutely speaking, the working man is better off today than in past generations. He maintained that you compare what the rich class has with what the working class has today, then the gap between the working class and the rich class today is greater than ever before. What does this mean but that the working class is not getting rich as quickly as the non-working class? 
Their condition is vastly improved, but not in the same proportion as that of their masters. So that now it is not pity for the poor, but envy toward the rich that is supposed to fire the socialist's breast. But this false pauperization theory has done splendid service in gatherings of working men, and doubtless will continue to do so for many a day. Working men will be told, as they are in a socialist booklet that lies before us, you are living in a slavery which is in many respects worse than that which prevailed in the South before 1863. This, then, is the doctrine reserved for the masses. In the upper strata of socialism, reason and reflection are working their beneficial effects, but the greatest care is taken that not even a modicum of reason or reflection shall filter down among the rough-handed sons of toil. Otherwise, the game would be up. The Iron Law of Wages The doctrine of the Iron Law of Wages, which is now abandoned by socialists, is mentioned here only as an additional illustration of the unstable character of socialistic theory. According to this law, the wages of working men vary from high to low and from low to high, but never remain for any length of time much higher than will enable a working man to obtain the barest necessities of life, and hence poverty is his eternal lot. The theory is contrary to facts and now occupies a place in the crowded lumber room of socialistic science. Men of reflection in the higher walks of socialism doubtless see, with no small degree of vexation, how unfortunate a thing it was that their system had its origin in the brain of a philosopher. Whilst pressing forward to the goal of collectivism, they feel themselves seriously hampered by the load of scientific rubbish which their early preceptors have clapped upon their backs and so they fling their pet doctrines one after another to the winds. It remains to be seen, now that socialistic thought is going to pieces, how long the farce can be maintained by which the rank-and-file promoters of the movement are drugged with a doctrine in which their leaders no longer believe. The reader will have noticed that we have given little direct refutation of the fanciful dogmas of the Marxian philosophy. That task we have left mainly to the socialists themselves. End of section 87. Recording by Chris Pyle.